So, um, let me ask you a question. Have you ever worked a job that you hate? By a show of hands, anybody? Where when you would wake up in the morning, you would be disgusted that the alarm clock even rang. I think many of us at some point in our lives, even if we had a job that we love, at some point in time, didn't enjoy going to work, where it was, you dreaded getting out the bed in the morning, even brushing your teeth, you're thinking, man, I got to go to work and deal with these people, or man, I got to do this particular task. And I, I, if I was to, and I, I've even read some of, uh, you know, Forbes and other people that have done some research on what it is that, uh, why people don't like their job. But if I was to boil it down into three things, I would say uh, one of them is that they don't like the environment that they work in. And that environment can include uh, their coworkers, which uh, tend to be involved in some mess, or, or they talk a lot, or you can't share any business with them, or they're always sharing somebody else's, or, or maybe they just they have uh, annoying attitudes, and they're always angry about something, or the world is always falling, or so, something like that, where if it's not the coworker, maybe it's the environment of the manager, or the boss, or the supervisor, and this individual is just hard to please. They always find something wrong with something that you're doing. They're hard to get along with. It always seems like every time they're around, something's about to pop off. Sometimes it's the environment. Other times, it's the task. It's the actual work that you do. And you probably hate it. I don't whether it's... Uh, whether it's, it, it requires too much physical exertion from you or maybe it's not mentally stimulating enough. Those are, that's one of the reasons why people don't like their job because they don't like what they actually do. And the third thing that I think is valuable for us to consider is that, that there's no sense of purpose in the job. That when you go to work, you feel like you have not made a contribution to the world or to society that you don't have a sense of calling when you do what it is that you do. Many of us find ourselves or have found ourselves in, in one of those examples where we did not like our job because of the environment or because of the, the task itself or, or the, the fact that there was no calling or purpose in what we were doing. And this morning, I, my purpose, my desire, is not to convince you that you need to quit your job and chase your dreams. So if you thought that was the direction that I was going, I, I'm not sorry to bust your bubble this morning. That's not what this sermon is about at all. In, in fact, what I, I want to encourage you to do, that if you are a follower of Jesus on that job that you hate, you have a responsibility to live out Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 through 24. Colossians says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. So what we're going to discover today in Daniel is that, that regardless of how crazy or chaotic or, 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 or secular or unlike God our jobs might be, we have a responsibility to work hard on that job as if we were working for the Lord. That's our responsibility. 
as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, even if you hate your job, you need to work that job as unto the Lord. work that job as unto the Lord. Why? Why is that important? Because a committed life, this is our bottom line this morning, if you don't take anything else away, this is what you need to walk out the room with. A committed life to God leads to an effective witness to the world. I'll say it again. A committed life to God leads to an effective witness to the world. Daniel, who's our uh, main character uh, today and in the weeks to come, Daniel is working a job in government. He, he, he serves the king. He is one of what you would consider a wise man, and so he's there to offer counseling. Daniel's actually about 17 years of age. He just completed uh, his studies at, U- at the University of Babylon, and now after his three-year program, uh, Daniel is serving the king. And the environment that he's working in is not an environment that is, that is encouraging his walk with the Lord. In fact, the environment discourages his connection to Yahweh, the one true God. He's working in this secular environment. And what we're going to see out of his life is that he is committed to God. And his commitment to God led him to be an effective witness in this secular environment that he's working in. And so the opening passages we see in the second year of, uh, of King Nebuchadnezzar, and just for, for the, 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 the scholar heads in the room, if you're wondering how did Daniel do a three-year program under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's year two of his reign. So just in case anybody roll up on you, maybe a Hebrew Israelite or somebody, I don't know, and they try to tell you that, that the scripture is contradicting itself, actually they didn't count his first reign as king because he was filling in halfway because King Nebuchadnezzar's dad died. And so they counted the four years, and so he's on his third year, but they've only counted two of them. So therefore, Daniel can go to a three-year program in the first year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, even though the scriptures only said year two, because they didn't count the first year. And so Nebuchadnezzar in year two has a problem. He has a problem as he is ruling his kingdom. And his problem is, is that he's had this dream and the dream is so disturbing and so frustrating and brought so much anxiety that he can't even sleep. And now dream interpretation was a big deal in, in this particular time frame, and, and especially for the Babylonians. That's why they have these astrologers and they've had these magicians and these sorcerers and all these people. They even had a book where they can walk through the signs in a dream to help uh, an individual interpret them. And so the king assembled his wise men. He said, here's the deal. I want you to interpret the dream that I had, but in order for me to know that you're not, you're not pulling my leg, I want you to also tell me what the dream was. Now, the king is asking something fairly abnormal. He's asking for an interpretation of a dream that he's not sharing. And he's expecting them to know what the dream is without him telling them what the dream is. Now, the wise men, you know, they're they're a little concerned 
because they know that they have a boss who's fairly hot-headed. They know that their boss could pop off at any minute, be frustrated and angry and blow up and talk crazy to them at any point in the conversation. And they wish they had a work environment like us where they can go, my man got two jobs, I ain't got to put up with this and he can leave, but they don't have that option. So they're saying, hey, king, if you tell us the dream, we'll interpret it. The king says, no, it ain't working like that in this environment. You can tell me the dream and the interpretation. If you do it, I'm going to bless you. I got rewards for you. I'm going to up your pay. I'm going to give you better hours, et cetera, et cetera. But if you can't, not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to destroy your house too. Like, dang, Nebuchadnezzar, what you on this morning? And when they, they and, and so what they say to King Nebuchadnezzar is, look, nobody has ever asked any wise man anything like this. They're essentially telling their boss that your expectations for us is unreasonable. And no matter how great or how powerful any king has ever been, they've never asked for something like this. But then they say something key, which brings me to my first point. If you look at what verse 11 says, it says what the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the God whose dwelling is not with mortals. Here's our first point this morning. The world has questions that only God can answer. The world has questions that only God can answer. Here's Nebuchadnezzar asking this question of his wise men, these professionals, these mediums, these sorcerers, these astrologers, and he's expecting an answer from them, but they acknowledge that no one on earth has the answer to the question that you're asking. Only the God. And when we think about how people are and we think about the world, that they tend to, to, to attribute this, this desire to know things to the universe. to Mother Nature or to just existence in itself or even zodiac signs where they, they expect to find answers to their problems and to their questions in those things. But ultimately, the one who has the answers that you need is God. And the wise men recognize this. And Daniel also recognizes this, which is why when he finds out, he has a conversation with God about it. So the world has questions. The world, they're asking, how, how, could, how could people uh, uh, be born in certain areas of the world and lack food? Why are, there, why are there children across the world that are starving? The world has questions. They have questions that only God has an answer. The world has, they have questions of, of why did, why did this particular loved one that I have have to pass away? Many, many people even now are asking the question, why, does, why is 2020 taking the most beautiful people away? People who have made such great contributions to society. People have questions. And the truth of the matter is, is that since the world has those questions and aren't sure where they should get the answers, 
they actually can find the answers from God's people. That we ought to be prepared to give answers to the world to the questions that they have. Are y'all with me this morning? So there are people on your job that, that are going to have questions, that are going to be thinking things through and molding things over, and God is giving you an opportunity to give them an answer. There's going to be, there's going to be sweet mates in, 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 a, in your dorm room, particularly in Madison Hall 208, that have questions about life that are going to need an answer. And you know the God that can give them the answer to those questions. There, there are people sitting at your desk in your classroom, teenagers, that, that don't know Jesus and, and can't figure out why things are the way they are in their life, and, and they need an answer, and that answer can only come from God. But if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ and you're committed to him, you're able to answer those questions. So as believers in Jesus, we got to be prepared to give those answers. So a part of being committed to God is that we also have to be willing to do the work. That here's our second point, that God empowers us to engage those questions. God has the answers, and then he empowers us to engage the questions that the world has. And we see that in the text. Here it is. That, that the king has set out a decree because the wise men were incapable of giving an answer only God could give them. And so they, so, so, so King Nebuchadnezzar employs Ariok, his chief exec, executioner, to go and to kill all the wise men of Babylon. Somehow, uh, uh, Ariok and Daniel cross paths, and I love what the scripture says about Daniel's interaction with him. Verse 14 says, then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Ariok, the captain of king's guard, who had gone to execute the wise men of Babylon. Notice that when he engages Ariok, he engages it with tact and discretion or wisdom. So he, he, whatever that looked like for Daniel, the two things that he employed was discretion. He was subtle about it. He was smooth. It, in, in my Christian imagination, I'm thinking as I'm looking at us, it, it, he wasn't just automatically going to the Bible and chunking scriptures at Ariok. He was able with wisdom to engage what the need was and be able to maneuver it in such a way that he could offer answers. So Daniel asks, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Ariok explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. So what Daniel does is he calls an appointment with the king. And he tells the king, hey, I can give you the answer if you give me some time. I love this because what Daniel's doing is he's actually operating in faith. God hadn't given him anything. Daniel's so committed to God that even when he doesn't have the answer yet, he knows that he can find the answer from his God. I, 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 I really, I really want to highlight Daniel this morning, my bad, uh, Daniel Austin, not Daniel in the Bible, uh, because one of the things that, that Daniel has, uh, and I didn't even ask permission to use this, so I'm going to just assume it's okay. 
So one of the things is Daniel has an atheist friend. Is it on your job? On his job. As an atheist, atheist friend that, that doesn't know the Lord, doesn't desire to know the Lord, is very, in, in, in some sense, very uh, uh, reluctant to even talk about the things of God. And, and Daniel had this season in his life where he, he started to dig and he started to learn and he started to ask questions. And when God opened up the door for him and his friend to have a conversation, to Daniel's celebration, as he called me, he said, I had an answer for every single question he had. And we're, we're talking about hard questions. Not, not Sunday school questions like, you know, uh, what did Jesus do for your sins? You know, the Sunday school answer, he, he died on the cross for my sins. For my sins. I said like Hester in my Sunday school class. Hard, difficult questions, but Daniel did the work. God empowered him to have the answer. Amen? And likewise, we got to be doing the same work that we're, we're in tune with God and we're walking with the Lord that we can answer those questions. And here's what Daniel in the scriptures did. As he knew that the king had a question that only God could answer, guess who he talked to? God. See, some of us are like, some of us are like those who call, the, the, uh, call AT&T or call DirecTV or, or call one of these companies and you get somebody on the phone and they can't help you and you waste your time talking to them. At some point, you need to say, hey, put somebody on the phone who can do something about what I'm asking. And so, so what Daniel does is he doesn't, he doesn't start consulting with everybody in the world. He doesn't have a meeting with all the uh, wise men and say, hey, let's get this. He goes to his friends and he says, hey, I need you to be praying with me that God will reveal this mystery. And so Daniel's approach to engaging the problems and the questions that the world has is that he goes to the, he, he skips the middleman and he goes straight to God. He goes to a person, he talks to the person who can do something about his problem. And so God empowers us to engage those questions. And this is indicative to, to what Daniel should be doing as a follower of Jesus. And what that is, is that he's seeking the welfare of Babylon. See, Daniel's concern is not just himself, but he's concerned to give the king an accurate uh, interpretation for the sake of the king. See, here's here's what the prophet Jeremiah tells the exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29. We're very familiar with verse 11, that God has a plan for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, etc. But here's the context and the framework that God has given those words to these particular people. He says, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city. I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for it thrives. For when it thrives, you will thrive. So Daniel is living in practice what God has spoken through the prophet Jeremiah in his work environment and in Babylon. 
that Babylon doesn't look like my God, is not interested in my God, is not interested in the things of God, but I'm going to work for the welfare of Babylon. Let me bring it home for you. You might hate your job, but you need to make sure that you're working for the welfare of your job. You might not like this country, but you need to be working for the welfare of this country. You have a responsibility. Let me talk to my people who are who are anxious to move out of Monroe. I feel you. I'm I feel you. But you're here. And the Lord has you here for a reason. So in the meantime, build houses, find you a husband or a wife, and work for the welfare of the city. So don't just sit idly by knowing that Monroe has problems, man. And I just, oh, all right, let me take it. I was about to get on a soapbox real quick. Knowing that there are issues in our city, it's easy to just say, well, when I get to Dallas or when I get to Atlanta or when I get to Houston, by the way, all those places are closed and not taking any more Monroe folks, just saying. So instead of actively engaging the issues where you live at, you just sit and ride it out. And God is not calling you to do that. He's calling you to seek the welfare of the city. And so Daniel is demonstrating this in his life, that there is an issue that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and he takes that issue personally because it does affect him so that he can do well goes to God in prayer to get the answer to the question that Nebuchadnezzar had. And here's what Jeremiah tells us. It says, when the city thrives, you thrive. So when your job does well, you do well. When Monroe does well, you do well. Seek the welfare of the Engage those things that God has called you to engage instead of sitting idly by and waiting for the next opportunity. So here's what happens. Daniel goes to his friends. He said, hey, we need to pray that God will give us an answer. Scholars believe that Daniel didn't go to sleep. They kind of debate about that a little bit. But we do know that God reveals the dream to Daniel and the interpretation. The thrust of what we're talking about this morning isn't necessarily that, but I do want to dig into it a little bit because I I would say when we talk about our our subtitle for our series, Committed, Resting in God's Sovereignty, that the dream and the interpretation ultimately points to the power of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Daniel reveals to us the dream, and we get to see why Nebuchadnezzar is so disturbed because he sees this this colossal statue, and in this statue there, there is a golden head. And the golden head, uh, there's a golden head, and then there's a a chest of silver. And then the abdomen and the thighs are made out of bronze. And then the rest of the statue is made out of iron, and the feet is made out of iron and a fire clay, which is very brittle. And what it's showing in the imagery is that the head is really strong and powerful and made out of very strong uh, materials. And as you work your way down from silver to bronze uh, to, to iron, to the feet, which is iron and uh, brittle uh, fire clay, it becomes less valuable. 
And what it's representing is, it's representing the, 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 the four Gentile uh, nations, if you will, that will ultimately rule the earth. Uh, at this current time, Nebuchadnezzar or, or Babylon was the, the reigning world power at the time. And so Nebuchadnezzar was the, uh, or his kingdom rather, was the, uh, was the one made of gold. And then from that, out of silver, was the Medo-Persian era, which is the individuals that ultimately pushed Babylon out of the way. Following them was, was the, the Greek world, or, or better in that time known as Alec, uh, Alexander the Great, is the bronze. And then after that, the Roman Empire, which is the leg, the iron. And scholars argue about what it, what it means for it to, to move in lesser value. Some believe that, that it's saying that progressively the world became less like God as these different kingdoms took over. But regardless of the case, what happens in the dream is that, and then, and then the feet represent the kingdom to come depending on where you are in your eschatological view. We'll talk about that in a second. And so the, the, the king, uh, the, the statue, which here's why Nebuchadnezzar is worried. He's worried because in the dream, there's this big piece of rock that comes out of nowhere and it comes and it smashes the statue. And in his brain, he's probably thinking that this statue represents me. And so now he's worried and he's distraught because it appears in the dream that his kingdom is about to be thwarted. And it's not abnormal for, for kings to kind of be, uh, uh, have this anxiety and all these things. Uh, in fact, there was one Roman king that killed his own brother because he was afraid he was going to try to take over the, the throne. Another one, Roman Empire killed his own wife. And so these guys typically live in, in paranoia, paranoia. Did I say it right? Okay, great. Live in that because they're afraid that somebody's going to try to overthrow them. So he's worried, he's concerned, and, and he thinks that this, this colossal thing, this mountain, has, this rock has come and struck the statue. But what it really is, and this is the part that we should be excited about, is that, that this rock is really the reign of Jesus Christ coming. That, that what he's communicating in the dream, God is, is that, that I have a kingdom that's going to come and it's going to destroy all the other kingdoms. No matter how bad, no matter how powerful, no matter how, how, how expansive their reign is, I have a kingdom that's much greater than those things that, that you can't even see it coming. And when I come, I'm going to destroy all those other kingdoms. Now, there are three views that, that, that scholars particularly take in their eschatological views about this. When I say eschatology, I'm talking about the study of the end times. Eschaton is the Greek word for last day. Scholars believe a, a series of, of three different views. One is that the, that the, the reign of Christ is, is only, uh, uh, according to Revelations, is only uh, symbolic, if you will. That God is only reigning in the hearts of his people. Uh, others believe, and that's amillennialism, others believe uh, a postmillennialism, which is that the reign of Christ uh, happens progressively. So our, our society progressively gets better and better until we reach this golden age. Then there's premillennialism, and this view is the idea 
uh, that, that, that God will come and literally destroy the present kingdom and reign literally on his throne on earth for a thousand years. That's where we get the word millennium from. Now, I'll go ahead and, and confess my bias. I believe that I can make a strong biblical argument for premillennialism in the event that there's a literal reign of Jesus Christ that will come and he will throw all of the kingdoms. And so no king, regardless of whether it's the gold, the, the silver, the bronze, the, the, the iron, or the iron and the clay mixed together, cannot stand against the kingdom of God. And not only is God, what we're seeing here is that God is the God over kingdoms. That kingdoms rise and they fall all by his hand and his power. And as we're preparing for this election season, we need to go ahead and start to develop this mentality, this ideology, this understanding from the text that God is ultimately sovereign over kingdoms. So some of us may be, may be worried about what the next decision is going to be with this new Supreme Court justice. Some of us are worried about the outcome of, of who's going to be elected regardless of the side. But can I, can I encourage you that regardless of those things, God is still sovereign and there's no Supreme Court justice that gets in place that God doesn't have his hand on it happening in the first place and likewise for the presidency. God is ultimately in charge. And that's why Daniel can, can sing the song of praise that he says when he says, that, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and he establishes kings. God's in charge. So what do we do in the meantime if God's in charge? What we do final point is we allow our excellent works to point to our excellent God. We let our excellent work point to our excellent God. Daniel gets the interpretation from the Lord. I love it. He celebrates God after revealing the mystery. And, and I think this is something that we need to be mindful of, that when God answers a prayer, don't forget to say thank you. And so God answers Daniel's prayer. Daniel takes a time to celebrate God for answering this prayer. Then he reconvenes and calls another meeting with his boss. And he says, I like this. I'm about to get you the interpretation. But let me be clear that it is because God chose to reveal this thing. So what Daniel starts to do is he starts to point not to his own competency, but he starts to point to the competency of God. The way Daniel lived in Babylon is that he ultimately gave credit to his God for his excellent work. How is Daniel? Now, now some might say, well, you know, this is a direct re revelation from God. Daniel's uh, competency had nothing to do with it. But I want you to be reminded that God in chapter 1 gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. So this is, this, is, this is human will 
and God's sovereignty at work with each other. That just as God is uh, working through Daniel, he's also empowered Daniel to do the work. In other words, Daniel is good at his job because God made him that way. And because Daniel is good at his job, and he's able to tell the dream and its interpretation with accuracy, we see the response of King Nebuchadnezzar. What is his response? It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. Now, some of you are like, man, he shouldn't be worshiping Daniel. You're absolutely right. But when you're working towards getting people to Jesus, you can't correct every single ounce of their theology. They don't get the ball down the field. Every time you have a conversation with somebody about God and they start espousing things about God that isn't necessarily accurate, you don't have to correct everything that they say. It's just a little free nugget for you. You know what? Now we should take up an offering for that. Then Then the king said to Daniel, verse 47, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries since you were able, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Daniel worked with excellence, and his excellence ultimately pointed King Nebuchadnezzar to God. Daniel has sowed a great seed in the most effective seed that he can sow in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, which is being good at his job. And what did this do? It pointed King Nebuchadnezzar to God. And ultimately what we see in two sermons later, that Nebuchadnezzar comes to make Jesus, uh, makes God his God. That Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. And here's Daniel sowing the seeds by doing what? Being excellent at his job. And you have the opportunity to be excellent at your job even a job you don't like. You have an opportunity to be excellent in your neighborhood, even if you don't like living there. You have an opportunity to look like Jesus in the community that you're in and at the workplace that you're in so that it can ultimately point back to your God. But who wants the God of the person who steals time? Who wants the God that is the person that's talking and being messy about other people at work? Who wants the God of the person who doesn't work diligently and work hard? How many of you want a Jesus-loving doctor that has a high death rate? How many of you want a lawyer to represent you that loses most of their cases? But they love Jesus, though. How many of you want a Jesus-loving teacher, but your child never learns anything when they come home? Your greatest witness is you being excellent in what you do. There's a a man, uh, he's a pilot, and, and some of the details are a little vague. Uh, but I'm going to do my best to relate it to you. 
uh, there was a man who he's flying this plane. His name is Captain David Cronin. It was the year 1989, I believe. And as he is flying this plane, the, there's a failure in the cargo door. And it pops open. And nine people are sucked out of the airplane. And the door that falls off the plane actually runs into the engine. And here it is, Captain David Cronin, a Christian man who is flying this plane, has to land it as best as he can. And they asked him in an interview, what were you thinking when, you, when, when all of this was happening? And his words were, I said a prayer for my passengers momentarily and then got back to business. He prayed momentarily for the passengers and then he got back to business. The greatest thing that he could do for his passengers was not come on the PA and say, all right, everybody, bow your heads and close your eyes. The greatest thing that he can do in that moment, pray the prayer trusting in God and get to work. And he was able to land the plane safely because he was competent in what he did. Here's what uh, Tim Keller says about the exact same story. He says, when United Airlines flight uh, 811 got into trouble, the greatest gift was his experience and good judgment. In those moments of peril, it mattered not for the passengers how Captain Cronin related to his co-workers or how he communicated his faith to others. The critical issue was this. Was he competent enough as a pilot to bring the badly damaged plane in safely? Through our work, we can touch God in a variety of ways. But if the call of the Christian is to participate in God's ongoing creative process, the bedrock of our ministry has to be competency. The best thing that you can do to offer to your coworkers, to your friends, and to your family is to be competent in what you do and allow your life to point to Jesus. Now, you got to talk at some point, but you need to make sure that you're ultimately pointing to Jesus because your life needs to be committed to him because a committed life to God leads to an effective witness to the world. Last nugget, and we're done. Notice that when King Nebuchadnezzar, in his excitement, he elevates Daniel to be ruler over all the province of Babylon. And what does Daniel do? He put his friends on. He put his friends on. And I just want to encourage you that as God elevates you, as he answers the questions and and you get to be a part of the blessing of God answering those prayers, don't forget to share the fruit. Don't forget to take the opportunity to elevate others as you are being elevated. That when God elevates you, you need to make sure that you're reaching back to bring somebody else along. Because that's what a committed life to God looks like in the midst of a crazy world. Amen? Amen. I just want to say real quick, if you don't know Jesus and you hadn't been living for him, then we want you to get that rectified. And the way you do that is by understanding first that you are guilty of your sin and deserve to be punished by God. But God, in his merciful love for you, gave his life on the cross so that you cannot be punished for your sins, but instead be forgiven. And your response to this loving work of Jesus Christ 
to die the death that you deserve to die after living the life that you couldn't live and resurrected from the dead to give you a new life, your response is to turn away from your sins and place your trust in Jesus. And if you want to do that today, my sister Angelica is in the back, and she would love to have a conversation with you about what that looks like for your life. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for your word today, and we pray that you are glorified in every way that we can live committed lives that lead to effective witness to the world, that we can be an effective witness on our job, in our school, in our neighborhood. Let your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.